Okay, so we are in Luke chapter 15. Turn there again to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is a revelation of the heart of God for the lost. In the parable of the lost sheep, in the parable of the lost coin, and also the parable of the two lost sons, not just one lost son. One was lost in the world in sin, and the other one was lost while he was in the father's house. And the purpose of that parable was actually directed to the Pharisees. Many times we preach this parable thinking that it is directed to the sinners. But Jesus was actually responding to the criticisms and the complaint of the Pharisees. Because in Luke chapter 15 verse 1 to 2, the Bible says that tax collectors and the sinners were attracted to Jesus. They drew near to him to hear him. And because the sinners were always around Jesus, fellowshipping, listening to his messages, feeling comfortable with him, it offended the religious Pharisees. It offended their understanding of God. It offended their understanding of the word of God. Because they were always brought up in this understanding that according to the law, rebellious sons and daughters must be put away from you. They must be stoned to death. For them, the law represented a harsh God, a judgmental God, a God who hates it. And they brought that into the belief and in the practice. So when Jesus comes and says that he is the son of God, he's the Messiah, he's speaking for God. And yet he's so comfortable with the sinners and the sinners are so comfortable with him, they're offended. What kind of a church, think about it. Will attract sinners. Well, let's also say this. The church is supposed to be the body of Christ, right? Ambassador of Christ, right? So the question is, if the church is not attracting tax collectors and sinners, is it truly representing Christ? We should be attracting sinners. Yes or no? The church should be attracting the worst people. Because that's what is seen in Jesus. Now, Jesus in his words and his actions was revealing the heart of God. These three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, it reveals that Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit's heart is for the lost. The parable of the lost coin, revealing to us the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is to seek and to save the lost. The Holy Spirit searches our hearts and reveals to us our sins and our need for a Savior. And the parable of the lost son reveals to us through the heart of the father that his heart is really for lost sons to come back home. Can you say amen? So all these three parables reveal to us the heart of the father. That God is not a distant God. That God is not an untouchable God. But that God, his heart beats with the rhythm of grace and love. And he wants to be close to sinners. He wants to bring them into his love. See, the reason that Pharisees were scandalized is because the problem of the law. That they were taught, that they were brought up in. The culture of the law that the Israelites had through their religion. And so, they thought that the law was given so that we can live righteously and be right before God. We can be justified before God. We can please God through the law. But that's not the purpose of the law. Because Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. 
And then in verse 19 he says that all the world may be guilty before God. That the mouths may be stopped. So the law is given so that men will not justify themselves anymore. All self-justification will be stopped. And men would realize that they are guilty before God. Because the law reveals sin. And then Paul says again in Galatians chapter 3. That the purpose of the law is to prepare, to protect. Till faith in Christ has come. Till Jesus shows up. Till the Savior shows up. So the purpose of the law was to be a tutor to lead us to Christ. Because in seeing the law, the Israelite and also all of us should realize that we cannot measure up to God's perfect standards. That's why in Romans chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, Paul says, There is no one good, no, not one. We compare ourselves based on our performance. Someone who goes to church every Sunday thinks he's better than the one who comes to church only on Easter. Someone who reads the Bible 10 chapters every day feels and thinks he's better than the one who reads just one chapter. Right? You have this class system in the church. Subtle racism. The ones who fast thinks they're better than those who don't fast. Particularly among charismatics or revivals. Yes or no? Yes. They'll say, you don't fast. So the implication there is you are inferior. Yes or no? Have you felt like if you don't fast, you are inferior? So there's a pressure to fast, to prove your works and to perform. Some churches have that culture. If you don't pray for more than one hour, you are not good enough as a Christian. So we have this system of class. Subtle racism based on performance and works. And so we think that the one who keeps more of the law is more pleasing to God than the one who keeps less of the law. Not understanding the purpose of the law. That the law was not given to justify men. The law was not given to transform men. Do you know that you cannot be transformed by keeping the law? The law was not given to save men. The law was not given so that you can get to heaven. Because if the law could justify you, then why did Jesus have to come? So when they saw Jesus through the lens of the law. They were judging his actions through the lens of the law. Because the whole life they were taught and brought up under the law. What was happening? They could not see the heart of God in Jesus' actions and Jesus' teachings. They could not see the heart of the Father. And so even though they knew the Bible intricately like the Pharisees. They did not know God's heart intimately. Isn't it strange that those who know the Bible do not know the heart of God? That mistake can still be made by us today. We can know special numbers. We can know the doctrines of the church. We can know all the festivals of the church. We can go to Sunday, every Sunday, right? And still not know the heart of God. So it's important for us to really, really understand the heart of the Father. Now, the law is good. The law is perfect. The law reveals God's perfect righteous standards. But the law was not given to make men perfect. The law was not given to make men righteous. Purely to show us that we are sinners. That we are guilty. And we need salvation. Come in. Can you say amen? The law is like a mirror that reveals to you your condition. But the law is powerless. 
Just like the mirror is powerless to heal you of any skin infection on your face, the law is powerless to heal you, to save you. Amen. Hallelujah. So, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 22. Deuteronomy 21 verse 22. So the law is composed of three parts. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, which governs the worship of the Israelites in the tabernacle, the system of priesthood, and also the animal sacrifices, and also the civil law, which governs the social and the legal justice system in the nation of Israel. The first five books of the Bible is the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, and sometimes Jesus refers to the first five books of the Bible as Moses. Okay, So the law has many commandments that the Israelites must observe. 613. But later on, the Pharisees and the rabbis, they added many more laws. Okay, So the laws governed the behavior. The laws governed the thinking. The laws governed the way that the Israelites related with one another and also the relationship with God. It was a system of do's and don'ts. Rules and regulations. So if you were born and brought up under the system of the law... And if you were there in Israel during the times of Jesus, and you were born and brought up under the law system, we would also have been on the side of the Pharisees. Because we would also have judged Jesus' actions based on our teaching, what we were taught. Because the Pharisees said, how can a holy teacher from God be fellowshipping with the worst people of our society? And they considered the tax collectors worse than the sinners. Because how they were exploiting their own people on behalf of the Roman authorities. Amen. So we have to understand that we can also fall prey to that same spirit. That same thinking. Many times we say things like, how can this church be doing these things? How can they wear torn jeans in church? How can they wear skirts in church? There was a time when even wearing jeans in church for women was considered a sin. Have you heard the teaching? Yes. If you wear jeans, it's sin. If you wear skirt, any skirt, it's considered sin. In some circles. I mean, in some parts of South India, some churches you go, if you wear gold, any form of jewelry or makeup, you are in sin. You're disobeying God. How many of you are disobeying God this morning? All you ladies. So we have to really understand... In the midst of all the different kinds of scriptures, we say different things, the heart of God. Because, very important, understand this. If you do not know the heart of God, you will misapply the word of God. And throughout the history of the church, you have seen certain denominations, certain preachers, take certain verses and really beat the church with those verses. Accuse, condemn. Call down wrath and curses. Even certain prayer groups going from house to house prophesying death and curses and judgment over people. Because they do not know the heart of God. So the Bible which is given actually to save mankind, to bring life to mankind, we're using the Bible to cut one another, accuse and condemn. It's because we do not know the heart of God. Deuteronomy 21 verse 22. Look at the penalty of death that is prescribed here for the rebellious son. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, 
and is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Underline that part. He who is hanged is cursed of God. So, the punishment for the rebellious son is this. Hang him on a tree. Hang him on a tree. But you should not hang him overnight. Bury him that day. Right? For such a man is cursed by God. Do you know that this verse was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented as a form of capital punishment? During Israel's time, when this law was given, the other nations of the world also, crucifixion was not invented yet. Do you know who invented crucifixion? The Romans. And the Romans came into being by the 5th century BC, the 4th century BC, and then later on, you know, slowly that was when they began and then they became stronger around the 2nd, 1st century BC and the times of Jesus. Crucifixion was not invented. In fact, when Isaiah prophesied in, I think, um, Isaiah 53, you can look at that. He prophesied about the cross, the crucifixion. You don't have to turn there. 700 years before Jesus was actually crucified. Isaiah has never seen crucifixion. Moses has never seen crucifixion. And yet, God was already putting into the word of God. How Jesus would come in the future. And take the place of all rebellious sons and daughters. Because the law says, if a man has committed sin deserving of death. Then surely, you must hang him on a tree. And he will die on the tree. But you must not let his body be there on the tree overnight. Remember the time when Jesus was dead? Joseph came and told Pilate, He's already dead. Give his body to us so that we can prepare his body for embalmment. The law says it must not be on the tree overnight. Now look at Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Are you there? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law we read just now in Deuteronomy 21-22? If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, he is to be put to death. Alright? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 here. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, the curse that should have come upon us, Jesus took it. So God's law is perfect. God's law must be kept. So who kept God's law perfectly? Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. Right? So, Understand this. The law is perfect. The law demands perfection for mankind. The law has deeds that we must follow. But man cannot give that to God because man is weak. Man is sinful. And that's why we need a savior. We need grace. We need to be freed from the curse of the law. So what happened? Jesus is hanged on the tree because of the Father's will. He becomes a curse for us. He dies the penalty of death for us. 
like the disobedient son, so that all of us, was Jesus disobedient? Come on, answer me. Was Jesus disobedient? Who was disobedient? All of us, right? So the obedient died in a place so that the disobedient can go free. That's the heart of the Father. So the heartbeat of God, understand this, is not the law. The heartbeat of God is grace. Because we see in Jesus, His message, His actions, His words, and in His ultimate sacrifice and obedience on the cross, the heart of God. The Bible says Jesus came from the bosom of the Father. That means Jesus proceeded from the heart of God. So in Jesus, we see the heart of God. To see Jesus is to see the heart of God. Can you say amen? Write it down on your notes. To see Jesus is to see the heart of God. So, the heartbeat of God is not law. It's not rules. It's not regulations. It's not do this and don't do that. It's not wear pants or wear mekla. Jewelry and makeup is important. But not as important as understanding grace. Yes, there's certain decency we must observe. Amen. However, the heartbeat of God is love. It is grace. And to truly understand the message of the Bible, we must know the heart of God. Because when you know the heart of God, you will begin to understand the Bible. And if you know the Bible without understanding the heart of God, you may know all the scriptures. You may be very well taught. And yet, you may not know how to apply the word and be a blessing to the world. Are you following me? The Pharisees knew the word, but they were harsh. They were mean. They were judgmental. Hallelujah. See, for the Pharisees, their relationship with God was performance-based. It was based on their works. They knew what the Bible said about sin. But they did not know the heartbeat of God towards sinners. And that's why they were scandalized that Jesus was sitting with the sinners. They knew the Bible said sin is wrong. But they did not know the heart of God towards sinners. Do you know that sin is wrong? Yes or no? Yes. But do you know that God loves sinners? God hates the sin, but God loves the sinners. But somehow we get that confused in the church. So what happens? We hate the sin and we also hate the sinners. Because we don't know the heart of God. So let me ask you this question. What is your picture of God? That's the message right now. Write it down. What is your picture of God? How do you view God? What is your idea of God? What is your concept of God? When you think of God, what is the picture that comes to your mind and to your heart? Because your idea, your concept of God is very important. Because it is going to determine your faith. It's going to determine your reverence towards Him. It's going to determine how you walk with Him. It's going to determine your peace, your security, your hope. What is your idea of God? When I say God, what is the dominant thought, picture, word, or even feeling that comes in your heart? Remember the time when 
Moses was up on the mountain and the Israelites were begging Aaron for a God to worship, right? So what did Aaron do? He took the gold and he fashioned a golden calf. Now the word for God that they used was right, Elohim. But the picture was wrong. Because in Aaron's mind, the picture of God, because they were just beginning to walk with God as a nation. They did not know God. They did not understand God. So part of the purpose of God bringing them out from Israelite is to be able to reveal himself to them. But Aaron and the Israelites, for 400 plus years, they are in Egypt. And when they are in Egypt, they see so many gods. Right? The God that looks like a cow. The God that looks like a lizard. The God that looks like a lion. The God that looks like a rat. The God that has so many different shapes. So in their mind, God is like this. So now they're leaving Egypt. They have their own God. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But they do not know. They do not understand. Their theology of God is not developed yet. So now when Aaron wants to make a God, he is going back to the God he's more familiar with. So he makes a God in the image and the picture that he had in his mind, even though the Israelites are wanting to worship a different God, the picture and image was still from Egypt. So today when you are praying, when you are worshipping God, what is your picture of God? Is your picture of God a harsh God? An angry God? Distant God? A God that without compassion? Uncaring about the needs and the pain of the world? Have you heard people say things like, If God is love, why do we have earthquakes? Why do babies die? Why are there diseases? Have you heard that? During the pandemic. So those statements put an image of God in the minds of the world. See, many people in the world today, if you go and ask them, do you believe in God? What will they say? Oh, yes, 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 I believe in God. Yes or no? So we all use the word G-O-D, right? G-O-D or Parmeshwar, Bhagwan. We use that word, right? But do you know the meaning of that word is different from people to people? Even insurance companies say things like this. In acts of God, insurance will not cover you. Acts of God meaning earthquake, flood. So in the mind of the insurance companies, earthquakes come from God. So that's the idea of God. What's your picture of God? What's your idea of God? Everyone says, I believe in God, I believe in God. But not only the word, but the idea, the concept is more important. Even in the church, many people have different ideas of God. Even in the same church, under the same teaching, you will find people have different ideas about God. Based on how you were brought up. Some churches think that God is a hateful God. Who is ready to judge you for the littlest mistakes you make. So they live in fear. That if I do something wrong, some curse is going to come immediately. Maybe some of you are from that kind of a culture. 
short-tempered God. The moment you sin, padak! Some people think that God is a very harsh, strict schoolmaster. Always ready to criticize and condemn for any mistake. So that church is always a very nervous church. Oh, nervous church. You cannot laugh in that church. Even if you walk, you have to walk like this. There's no freedom in that kind of a church. Outside the church, people laugh, ah, but inside the church, you cannot laugh. Because you're very tense before God. Because for you, your God is a very harsh, strict disciplinarian. So according to your view of God, is going to influence your behavior. Your behavior. Amen. So what is your picture of God? This is the reason for so much confusion in the body of Christ. Even among preachers, sometimes you get hard preachers. Always condemning, condemning, condemning the church for some sin. Always finding fault with someone over something. Always saying things like, you will go to hell. God hates the homosexuals. God hates. They say things like that. And on the other hand, nowadays you see a lot of preachers who are like, God loves you, it's okay, God loves you. And as Pastor Apre taught yesterday about progressive Christianity where it's alright. If God is love, all of us will go to heaven. If God is love, there cannot be sin. If God is, I'm, I'm sorry, if God is love, there cannot be hell. I've sat down with some preachers, missionaries who said, I don't really believe in hell anymore. Because if God is love, they cannot be held. So they go extreme into grace. Extreme into the love of God where they're preaching universalism. Which means everyone will one day be saved. Then why did Jesus have to die on the cross, right? So now you hear those kind of preaching. That kind of messages even in the body of Christ. So we get confused. What kind of a God do we serve? Prayer houses come to your house and say, God is saying... That you must sponsor this crusade. And if you do not sponsor the crusade, your baby will die. Have you heard such prophecies? It's happened in Nagaland. And of course, the crusade is organized by them. Obviously. I was told by a pastor. That the prayer group actually said that. Now, is that the kind of God that we serve? Who is like a mafia boss. Puts a gun in your head and says, Hey, you have to give five likes to the crusade or I will shoot your son. <laughs> That's a mafia boss. So according to the kind of God you think you serve, you will also prophesy like that. You will also use the gifts like that. I've seen people prophesy. They're so loving and the kind. But when they prophesy, suddenly they turn into this. It's all in the glorious I'm like, what happened to you? You were so sweet and loving, but when you started prophesying, you turned into this angry person. And you are speaking for a God that you think is angry. Not knowing that your father, your heavenly father, is a loving father. Are you understanding me? 
So your picture of God is very important. Amen. Do you know what the jigsaw puzzle is? Jigsaw puzzle. Everyone knows what the jigsaw puzzle is? You don't know. Which planet are you living in? You know a jigsaw puzzle? That board game, right? You have many pieces and you don't know and you have to join the pieces. Right? You know that? That game, that board game? Okay, so during a holiday many years ago, a preacher was given a week in a resort to rest. So when he went there, the first few days of his time, he found a jigsaw puzzle. Two or three boards. And both were pictures of scenery. Beautiful scenery. 2,000 pieces. So, <coughs> the first box, he tackled. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> he took up the first box. And he what, had a lot of free time. So he wanted to make the jigsaw puzzle. He thought he would finish very soon. But he struggled for two days. And he could not make the jigsaw puzzle. And he was very confused. He kept on trying again and again. But he could not finish the jigsaw puzzle. So he was about to finally give up. Then suddenly he realized something was wrong. You know what was wrong? Somebody had shifted the cover of the jigsaw puzzle. Because that box has a cover. And on the cover is the picture, right? And the other box also has a cover. And the cover is the picture. So you have to look at the cover, the picture, and make the pieces. Somebody has shifted the cover. Now do you get it? So when you have shifted the cover, he was trying to make the puzzle with the wrong picture in mind. And because he had the wrong picture in mind, he could not finish. He was frustrated. So when he realized that, he brought the right picture and he could finish the jigsaw puzzle in 10 minutes. See, in the same way, we are trying to solve the puzzle of life with the wrong picture of God in mind. And that's why we are frustrated. That's why we go through confusion. That's why we go through depression. That's why we lose hope. Because life can be a puzzle, isn't it, at times? We don't know what's happening in this year. We don't know what happened, COVID. And then we don't know what's going to come in the days to come. People are saying the last days. And then we go through problems in our own lives. We think that if I am good, good things will happen. But because sometimes you do good things, bad things happen. And then you see wicked people are prospering. And it seems that bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. Have you ever been confused about those things? Life can be a puzzle. So when we're trying to figure out life, solve the jigsaw puzzle of life with the wrong picture of God in mind, it can be very frustrating. So, uh, Broken or incomplete picture of God will give us a broken or incomplete walk with God. Don't look at me, write it down. 
Learn to recognize the important statements. Not all statement is from the Bible. Some statements are truths, which are powerful, which will help you to interpret again other aspects of life. A broken or incomplete picture of God will give you a broken or incomplete walk with God. <clears throat> Write this down. You, we are only as strong as our concept of God. Your strength will come from the right concept, idea, and picture of God. You are only as strong as who your idea of God is. The Bible says, you become like who you worship. Now all of us say, I worship the God of the Bible. I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But if the idea of the God of the Bible to you is an angry God... You become like that. Angry towards the world and angry towards sinners. You become like the God you worship. Because the Bible says, if your God, your idol is blind, the ones who worship those idols are also blind, they cannot see. If your idol has ears that they cannot hear, the people who are under that idol, they cannot hear the things of truth. You become like the God you worship. Are you with me? Amen. Look at John chapter 14, <clears throat> verse 7. John chapter 14, verse 7. Are you there? Let's read from verse 7 to 9. 1, 2, 3. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Underline that. He who has seen me has seen the Father. What is your picture of God? We say during the Hornbill Festival, picture of Nagaland. So if tourists come to the Hornbill Festival and they go through six, seven days of seeing the different cultural programs, going to the different huts, if you have seen the Hornbill Festival, you have seen Nagaland. That's what we say. Right? So in the same way, when Philip says, show us the Father, so that we will not be confused. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is saying, I am the picture of the Father. This is one of the most important revelations for your life. Write it down, underline it. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And Jesus says, from now on, you know him. Well, how do I know him? Because you have seen me. So Jesus is saying, my father and I are the same. We are one. Amen. 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do we understand God? Through the law? Through science? Through creation? Some people try to understand God through creation. They look at beautiful creation and say, Oh, surely there must be a creator somewhere for all this beauty to be there. And yes, they are images of God's design, God's power, God's creativity in creation. Science with an open heart would reveal to all scientists that there is design in the universe. That all these things which are in exact order, the way the stars move around the suns, the way nature functioning, it cannot be just through a bang. It cannot just come out through chaos. Even doctors examining the human body, even just the intricacies of the thumb, the mechanics of it, come to the conclusion that there must be God. Because at, with all the advancement of engineering and science, we still cannot replicate the human thumb. But God sends His Son in the form of mankind, in the flesh. So that we can see Him and understand who God is through Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So the way we understand the Father is through the Son. The Jews had a legalistic understanding of God. And the legalistic understanding of God came from the law. The law. See, God did not give the law. Understand this, okay. God did not give the law to define Himself. God did not give the law to reveal to Israel who He is. Again, this is a mistake that sometimes the church makes, preachers make. God gave the law to reveal to the Israelites who they are. That they are sinners without God. Are you following? The law was not given to define God. God did not give the law to tell the Israelites, See, I'm so strict. See, I'm so harsh. See, I'm angry all the time. No. God gave the law to Israel to define to them who they are. You are sinners. You are guilty. And you need God. Can you understand? The law does not define God. The law defines us. It defines us. It tells us who we are. Amen. But now, Jesus has come. And Jesus seems to be in contradiction to the law. Jesus seems to be doing opposite to the law. The law says, stone the rebellious son. Jesus is having dinner with them. The law says, stone the woman in adultery. Right? The woman caught in adultery should be stoned according to the law. But Jesus forgives. Eh? This is not the God we worship. Eh? This church is so different from us. We have the same attitude at times. What is happening here? They know the book. But they don't recognize God. When it comes. May that not be our fault also. That we know the book. And we know 
all the festivals of Christianity. We know the special numbers. We know how to dance in church. Worship the Lord. Lift up hands. And yet not know God. If we want to know God, we have to look at Jesus. Jesus is perfect theology. Write it down. No matter what denomination you are from. What country you are from. What race you are from. To know God, we must know Jesus. We must study Jesus. Because he who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect representation of God. Jesus is perfect theology. See, when we see God as creator God, the book of Genesis reveals him as creator God. But if you only know him as creator God, he's like a force, distant, impersonal. I'm in pain, but it seems like God is not concerned about my pain. Because he's just a creative God. Powerful, almighty, but just a force. Like electricity, like sunshine, like an energy. If we look at God simply as a provider. He sends mana in the morning. He sends meat in the evening. We will look at God as an ATM machine. That we will only go to God when we have a need. We take out a monthly salary. And some people treat God like ATM. They only pray when they have a need. Yes or no? They treat God like a spare tire. Because of the idea of God that's in their mind. If you see God as Lord, as your master, you will relate to him as a slave, as a servant. Only to obey. Only to do your duties. So it's my duty to go to church on Sunday. Even if I sleep, I will have to go to church on Sunday. So you come and you sleep. But because you went, you feel good in your heart. Ah, I've done my duty for the Lord. How many of you in the past used to go to church and feel good that you went to church? You did not understand anything. <laughs> you even slept in the church, but you felt like you have done your duty and you felt good. Come on, let me see your hands. Yeah. What is that? You are seeing God as Lord and Master. And that you have to fulfill your duties. If you see God only as Savior... Someone who died on the sins, uh, for your sins on the cross. Someone who gives you salvation. You know what's going to happen? You will relate to God only as someone who has mercy for you. And who takes you to heaven. You will walk with Him only as a sinner who is forgiven. If you see God... As a friend, because Abraham was a friend of God. Moses was a friend of God. There's a song that says, I'm a friend of God. Sometimes we lose the sense of reverence towards God. We see him as a buddy, as a friend. And we lose that sense of fear towards God. So the picture of God we have is very important. But when we look at Jesus... 
And in his relationship also with his disciples. And in the words of Jesus, we will get this picture. God reveals himself as Father. Write it down. In Jesus, God reveals his identity as a father. Father. He's not just a buddy. He's not just a savior. He's not just a creator. He's not just a provider. He's your heavenly father. And it's important to get this right because it will affect your relationship with Him and your walk of faith. Because in the word Father, there are so many truths there. See, even the word Father in itself, there's a sense of security and comfort, right? And you know that you can be close to your Father, but you also know you cannot disrespect your Father. And you know that you should not be calling your Father only when you need money. Some of you do that. I used to do that. Once a month, when I was in college. Dad, I need 5,000. Okay, how are you? Yeah, oh, okay, okay, okay. The only reason I called was because I needed money. Right, the word father is loaded with power, with meaning, and purpose. Alright? Look at Psalms 115. I'm going very slow. Normally, I will finish this in one class. Psalms 115. Important to get God right. Because it will affect the way that you live your life. Psalms 115 verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears. Right? But they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through the throat. Those who make them are... Underline that. Those who make them are like them. You are like the God you make in your mind. You don't have to make in your heart. You don't have to make with your hands. You know that. You can make a God in your mind. So is everyone who trusts in them. What is a false concept of God? A false concept of God is an idol. How many of you bow down to idols every day? Can I see your hands? Ah, yeah. you don't to a physical idol, but many of you are bowing down to a wrong concept of God in your mind. And some of you are bowing down to the idol called, you want to know? S-E-L-F. Which is the biggest religion in the world. <laughs> Self. Self. When your motivation to pray is for you, not 
for the sake of Jesus. When you want to be in ministry for yourself, not for Jesus' sake, right? We understand the difference, right, in motives. You're actually worshipping self. See, if you worship a false concept of God, it's an idol. An idol. An idol has eyes that they cannot see, ears that they cannot hear. What does it mean? If your concept of God is wrong, you're going to have problem seeing spiritual truth. You're going to have problem understanding spiritual truths. You're going to have a problem hearing from God. Seeing from God. And walking with God. Did you follow? Amen. And that's what the law was given for. The law was given to point us, point you in the direction of Jesus. The law wasn't given so that we govern our life by having to keep the law. The law was given to point us in the right direction. The law is not the destination. Perfection is not the destination. Rules and regulations is not the destination. Go back to Galatians. Let me show you something here. How many of you, when you came this, for the first time to Nagaland, when you reached Dimapu and you were coming up, you saw a sign saying Kohima. Right? So when you saw the sign, did you stop and say, oh, I've reached Kohima? Huh? No, you don't do that. The sign says you have to keep on going. Right? The sign is not the destination. So the law is not the destination. The rules and the regulations, the commandments of God are not the destination. There are the signs that point to the person of God. Point us in the right direction. And that's why Paul wrote the epistle of the Galatians to the church at Galatia. You know why? Because there were some people there in that church run again by the preaching of the gospel under the ministry of Paul. They experienced great liberty. They experienced revival in that church because they understood the love of God, the grace of God, and the Spirit of God worked mightily. They were experiencing liberty in Christ. But then, after Paul left, some believers from Jerusalem came and taught these believers in Galatia that it is not enough to believe in Jesus. It is not enough to have faith in Jesus. You must keep the law also. You must be circumcised. Ah, scary. Scary gospel. You must be circumcised. I hope you know what circumcision means. Right? You must keep the laws of Moses. You must observe the festivals and the days. So that's what they taught. So, what was happening was that the joy, the liberty, and the work of the Spirit in the church began to deteriorate. Began to go lower and lower. And that's why Paul had to write this. To correct the doctrines of this group called the Judaizers. There were people who were born again. 
Many of them were Pharisees. They were born again. They believed in God. And yet they could not leave their old thoughts and their old practices behind. So they taught this. Jesus gives salvation, but you are made right by the law. Jesus died for us on the cross and we believe in Him. But the law will what will bring us finally to eternity. So for them it was Jesus plus law. Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus Moses. And we know what the gospel says. Jesus plus anything is not grace. Jesus plus anything is not the gospel. Because we are saved by grace. Amen. So Paul had to write. And correct the wrong thinking. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Verse 9. But now after you have known God. See they are already born again. Or rather unknown by God. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Why are you going back to weakness? The poor things of the past. And what is it? Verse 10. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. What is that? The system of worship under the law. Why are you going back to the law? Why were they doing that? Because they did not have a correct picture of God. Are you following? This happens even to us today. We are transformed by the gospel. We hear the message and we enjoy our relationship with God. But then what happens? Depending on the kind of church, the kind of teaching you got, after three or four months, you have lost the joy. Anyone experience that? You feel dry. What happened? Many times what happened was that you experienced the grace of God when you believed in the gospel, but you went back to performance. You went back to legalism. You went back to tradition. And you did not continue in the grace of God. You went back to this thinking that your relationship with God is based on your performance. Look at verse 15. Galatians 4.15 what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. In the Amplified Bible, this verse says, What has become of that sense of blessing and the joy that you once had? Did you understand what Paul is saying? Paul is saying this. When I was there with you, and I preached the gospel to you, and you accepted Jesus, there was great joy in your life. There was this great sense of peace in your life. Oh, this church was experiencing heaven on earth. Everyone was so full of the peace and the joy of the Lord. But after these people came and preached and taught that you have to keep the law. You have to be performing for pleasing God. This joy has vanished. How many of you, when you gave your life to the Lord, first two months was like heaven on earth? Come on, let me see your hands. And how many of you, that joy has left? You know the Bible says God is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That means you always have peace and joy. If you learn to walk in the truth and the right picture of God, why did they lose this joy? You know why? Because with the law comes an expectation of the curse. Because you think that I have not kept the laws. So you start feeling guilty. 
You start feeling like, I am not right with God. I have not prayed enough. I have not fasted enough. I have not done enough. And when you start thinking like that, you begin to define yourself as 60% Christian, 50%. You begin to look at yourself as unworthy. And you lose that sense of joy that you had in the beginning. You lose that sense of victory. Why? Because of the God you worship. The Galatians taught the God they worship is a God who is demanding them to keep the law. You have to be circumcised. Can you imagine going to that conference? You're so happy going to the conference. Oh, I'm going to the conference. These people have come from Jerusalem. You're in the church of Galilee. You sit down and the preacher goes and says, you have to be circumcised. Oh, oh my gosh. I have to look for a doctor. I have to be circumcised. If not circumcised, God will not bless me more. I will not be more transformed. How many of you will go back to the second session? Right? Now you're thinking, this picture of God is He's demanding from me this works. So the kind of God that you worship and know in your heart will determine your victory and your joy. Hallelujah. Let's look at Galatians chapter 4. Verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come. See, Paul is in the same context. The same subject he's dealing. So we have to study well. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son. His son. Not the law. His son. Born of a woman. Born under the law. So Jesus was born under the law. And that's why Jesus said, the son of man has come to fulfill the law. He did not come to break the law. He came to fulfill the law, right? To fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill the law. Born under the law. Verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. To redeem those under the law. That we might receive the adoption as. Right. Underline it. Receive the adoption as. Sons. Sons. Now the word sons also includes women. Alright. Because do you know that in the spirit. There are no daughters. Nowhere in the epistles. We will see daughters of God. Of course, because of politeness, we say sons and daughters. But do you know that you're also sons of God? I'm not talking about your body. I'm talking about your spirit. You're all sons of God. All the women say, Amen. You're sons of God. The term sons of God is not a gender term. It's a spirit term. Amen. Sons. Sons. Verse 6. And because you are sons... God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And the Holy Spirit deliberately kept the word Abba. Did not translate it into the Greek. This is written in Greek. It's supposed to be Pater. In Greek, the word for Father is Pater. P-A-T-E-R. That's where we get paternity. Paternal care. Right? But here, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul, instead of writing pater, wrote Abba. Because the word pater does not evoke the feeling of father like Abba. Abba is a Hebrew word, an Aramaic word. That little children refer to their father as. Toddlers running around, Abba, Abba, Baba, Baba. If you translate it into Hindi or Nag, it would be Baba. Abba Father. 
which is so different from the law. Because, see, the church in Galatia had lost the sense of joy, have lost the sense of victory and freedom. Because now they're seeing God as a legalistic judgmental God. But Paul is writing in the same chapter here. Listen, when you believed in God, Jesus redeemed you from the law. That means redeemed you out of that guilt and that condemnation and out of all these requirements that made you right before God. God, Jesus redeemed you from that and sent the spirit of his son into your heart so that from your heart you will now know him as... Abba, Father. And you say, Amen. That you will know God as Father. So Paul is saying here, you are not slaves. Why are you behaving like slaves? In fear, lost your joy. You are sons. You have the spirit of his son in your heart. The spirit of Christ. In your heart. So that in the same way as Jesus was close to the Father. In the same way that Jesus says, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father. When Jesus prayed for the bread, He blessed it. He said, Father, I thank you. And then He multiplied the bread. The same Spirit is in your heart. The same Spirit of Christ is in your heart. So that you will also know God as your father. This for me? Oh my gosh. They are spoiling me. Cup after cup. So, see. God wants you to have the same relationship with him like Jesus had with him. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit of his son into your heart. Your heart. So that you can also cry out, Abba Father. Not God. Which is sometimes a very formal term. Now you go to the world today and you ask them, Do you believe in God? Everyone will say, Yes, yes, yes. Bhagwan dohe, Bhagwan dohe. They'll say this. Yes or no? But if you ask them, Do you believe that God is a father? How can God be my father? Right? But the revelation that Jesus has come to give us is this. God is not just God. He is Father. Father. He is your Abba Father. And now God wants you to relate with Him as a father and son relationship. Not master-slave. Not Lord and servant. Not creator and creation. But as father and son. But in the father and son relationship, there is respect, there is honor, there is fear. But there's also intimacy. There's trust. There's comfort, there's security. Amen. The prodigal son could not relate to his father as a son. Did you know the story we read in Luke chapter 15? He could not relate to his father as a son, but as a slave who does not deserve anything. You know why? Because he sinned. He knew he has sinned. He knew he has wasted his father's possessions. He knew he has been with prostitutes. He knew that he has been with all the wrong people. And he was convicted. The Bible says when he was with the pigs 
It came to his heart. Realization came. Revelation came. I'm in sin. I'm a sinner. He realized, wait a minute, my father is good. Because he was with the wrong master. Remember? In the beginning, he did not have a right view of his own father. So he thought, my father, I think the fathers of the world are better. I think the life the world has to offer is better. I'm here with my father. My father's life is boring. So he asked for his inheritance. And he went down and he spent all that he had. And because he was hungry, he began to work for others. He worked for masters. But the masters were cruel. They did not give him anything to eat. Except what the pigs were eating. That's a picture of Satan. When you leave your heavenly father looking for other fathers, you will end up like that. But then suddenly he realized, even the servants in my father's household have enough to eat. And this fellow, who I thought can give me a better life than my own father, is making me eat what the pigs are eating. So he realized, wait a minute, my father is good. But because he was condemned, because he felt guilty, because he knew that he has done wrong, he came to his father, but he came very sheepishly. And when the father came and hugged him, he said, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Go to Luke 15, right? Make me like one of your hired servants. Make me like one of your hired servants. The son had sinned so much and he was filled with so much sorrow for his sin that he could not see himself as a son anymore. That's what sin does to us. It destroys our own image of ourselves. It destroys our image of God. So he thought now his father will not be loving to him because he's wasted all his father's money. And he also thought of himself that he's not good enough. I cannot be a son. Let me be a servant. How did that happen? Sin. Now let's look at the other son. Verse 29. Verse 29. Lord, these many years I have been serving you. Ah, his main idea was Serving, not loving. All these many years I've been serving you. I never transgress your commandment. So his consciousness is rules and regulations. Obedience. That's his mindset. His mindset is law consciousness. I never transgressed one of your commandments. See, he's so self-righteous. Self-righteous. The law was given so that we will be quiet before God. We cannot defend ourselves. This son was defending himself. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. You never gave me. See? He never saw his father as loving and compassionate. He was expecting based on my good works because I obey you, you should give me. Can you see the attitude of the elder son? But as soon as this son of yours came, see, this son of yours he could not call his brother, brother anymore. He was so judgmental and accusing. Who has devoured your livelihood with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. How can you bless him when he has done all this wrong? And what about me? That's what the elder son is doing. He's saying, I've never done anything wrong. And yet you have blessed him more than me. Let me ask you this question. Who talks to their father like that? Anyone here? Do you talk to your father like this? Huh? Yes or no? 
he was relating to his father as an employer to an employee, a slave to a master, a servant to the Lord, but not as father. Do you know that a lot of Christians relate to God like this? They go to church, they pray a lot, they read the Bible, they serve, but they are joyless. Joyless. Peaceless. They always think that, ah, I have not done enough. There must be something more I need to do. I've done this, I've volunteered here, two hours here, praying, three hours here, preaching the gospel, but still, restlessness in my heart. There's still something more I need to do. Have you ever felt like that? I felt like that as a pastor, as a believer, as a Bible school student. And even today, many people come for counseling and they say, I've been in prayer house, I've prayed so long, but I still feel that God is not happy with me. How many of you feel like that? Ah, welcome to the elder son. You are also lost. You are not sinning in drug addiction. You are not out there in the world doing all those scandalous things. But you are also lost. Lost. Because you really don't know your father. What is the chief purpose of mankind? The chief purpose of mankind is this. To glorify God, right? Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And to enjoy God. Do you know that? Adam and Eve were created so that God could come in the cool of the evening and walk with Adam and Eve and have a relationship with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve could enjoy God. I'm not talking about enjoy God like ice cream. Like enjoy a movie. Like enjoy a football game. No, I'm not talking about flesh. I'm talking about fulfillment. I'm talking about identity. I'm talking about purpose, meaning. You see, the word enjoy is more than just enjoying one hour of Netflix. No, the word enjoy in the spiritual sense means that you will find who you are in Him. And you will find your meaning in Him. You will find your fulfillment in Him. You will find your deepest pleasures in Him. You will find your greatest joys in Him. That's the chief end of man. Amen. Hallelujah. And here it includes intimacy. Yes, we reverence our fathers, but we are not afraid of him. My son can just come into my bedroom, lie on my bed next to me. But when I scold him, he listens. And when I say, you're not supposed to do this, go. Then he will obey. But it's not coming from a master-slave relationship. It's not coming from anger and hatred towards him, but from love. And he receives it from love. Amen. Hallelujah. So the correct picture of God will help us to walk rightly and live rightly, even on this earth. To enjoy God. To glorify Him and to enjoy Him. To enjoy Him doesn't mean that we are careless in our relationship with Him. That we don't fear Him. No. There's a difference between negative fear and positive fear. Negative fear is the fear like a servant has. God doesn't want us to have that kind of fear. Because the Bible says, perfect love casts out fear. The knowledge of your father will cast out fear from your life. But there is what we call reverence, respect, honor. Jesus also defined it as worship. 
in that moment of worship when we're honoring God. Right? That's always there. Even though you know how much God loves you. And that's part of the way we enjoy our relationship with God. Why is it difficult for Christians to have intimacy with God, closeness with God? Why? Why are we dealing with this in the first week of the Bible school? Because your ability to understand the other teachings, your ability to receive in your heart will depend on this teaching. How you view God. So that now you would receive every teaching as your father speaking to you with love. Why is it difficult for Christians to enjoy the intimacy with God? Alright, number one. You think you are the prodigal son. Or your life is like the prodigal son. So you condemn yourself for your sins. You define yourself as unworthy, like the prodigal son. You are regretting your past mistakes like the prodigal son. And you don't think you are deserving of God's blessings like the prodigal son. Right? Have you been in that state before? How many of you sometimes you feel like you're unworthy, unworthy, ah, you're not deserving because of the past mistake? Can I see your hands? So you like the prodigal son in some aspects. Now, some Christians are like the elder son. Elder son. Your whole life, you are trying to be close with God through your works. Your whole life, you are trying to earn God's love through your performance. Through your obedience. For you, Christianity is only duty, 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 duty. And that's why you never sense that closeness and intimacy with God. So we could be like the younger son or we could be like the elder son. Elder son. So this is a story of two brothers. Not one brother. Two brothers and an extravagant father. And these two brothers both represent a different way to be far from God. A different way to seek acceptance into heaven. Tax collectors and sinners were attracted to Jesus. They were the younger sons in this story. They were living the wrong life. While living. They were not keeping the law. Like the prodigal son. They had left the home of God. In a sense. The law of God. On the other side were the Pharisees and the teachers. They were the ones who were like the elder brother. They kept the law. They were in the father's house. They never left the father's house. They were in the father's house. They were obeying. But they were offended by Jesus. They were self-righteous. Are you following? They were the keepers of the law. The target of this parable is not the tax collectors and sinners. The target of this parable is the Pharisees. The target of this parable is all of us. Not only the drug addicts and the alcoholics. The target of this parable is the Christian. The legalistic Christian. Religious people. The target of this parable is all of us, you Bible school students. 
Because it will reveal to you your narrowness. It will reveal to you your hard-heartedness. It will reveal to you your blindness. How you see God and how you see yourself. Do you know that we are lost? Oh, but pastor, I'm not lost. I'm born again. I believe in Jesus. Yeah, we are. But in a sense, all of us are lost. You are in the Father's house, but you're still lost. Why are we lost? Because we do not know God for who He is. We do not know God for who He is. And it reflects so much in the way we look at the world. On one side, we have the worldly, secular people who will accuse the church of being hypocrites. And on one side, we have the church people, religious people, who will accuse the worldly people of being in sin. On one side, we will have those people who believe in abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism. And they will say, oh, God's a loving God and the church is hateful, the preachers are hateful. God is with us because God's a loving God. And on the other hand, we will have the church, the conservatives, who will say, abortion is wrong, homosexuality is wrong. And they may even do it in a hateful way. I've heard preachers say that how God hates homosexuals and all that. And these people will say, God is on our side. Because we are the moral keepers. We are the righteous ones. These people will say, God's on our side. Because He's God of grace and mercy. Whose side is God on? What do you think? Even some denominations will say this. God is on our side. We are better denomination than others. Because we believe in this, 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 this. And these people don't believe in that, that, that. Right? Even denominations. They claim that God is on the side more than other denominations. Do you know whose side God is on? He's on nobody's side. The question is not whether God is with me. The question is whether we are with God. God is on no one's side. He's on His own side. And He's inviting you to come to His side. Just like He invited the prodigal son, come into the house. Let's eat and be merry. And when the elder son got angry and said, you are not on my side. How can you just celebrate your prodigal son who was living with prostitutes and you killed the fatted calf for him? You are not on my side, father. You should be on my side. You should not be on his side, right? The father also invited him to come inside the house. The father was not taking sides. The father was as he is. Loving, kind, gracious. So the Father is inviting us all, whether you are like the prodigal son, whether you're like the elder son, to come into his sight. The question is this. If our message is not attracting sinners, then what are we preaching? If our churches are not attracting sinners, then we must be full of elder brothers. And our message must be elder brother message. Yes or no? Because both sons were lost. But the amazing thing is, both sons are loved. 
the father loved both sons. And the way he talked to the elder son was also very loving and tender. But not bowing down to his demands and his self-righteousness. Are you with me? God is inviting us to know who He really is. He truly is. Close your eyes for a moment. Just imagine in your mind that there are three doors. Three doors. Just be honest with yourself, okay? This is not a test. There are three doors. On one door is the word Holy Spirit. The second door is the word, the Son. And the third door is the word, the Father. Which of these three doors you feel more freedom to enter? Okay, open your eyes. Which one? How many you feel more free to enter the door which says Jesus? How many feel more free to enter the door which says Spirit? How many feel more free to enter the door which says the Father? Okay. It's just a simple test to know in your heart, you know, just your own thoughts and feelings and attitudes to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Okay? Usually, most people will say the Son. Okay. So now we want to look at Malachi chapter 4. <coughs> Malachi chapter 4. Jesus, through his actions, is revealing to us that God's heart is for the lost. He's not a distant, angry, and vengeful God. He's not untouchable, but he's touchable by ordinary human beings. And even sinners can touch God. Even the worst can touch God by faith in Jesus Christ. But Jesus is revealing, most importantly, that he is a father in this parable who is longing for his sons to come back home. Come back home. Okay? Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 to 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn. And he will turn. That means Elijah. That means there will be a prophetic movement. The pouring out of the Spirit. Okay? In the last days, before the coming of the Lord in judgment. And this move of God will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the hearts of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So what we're going to see in the last days. This Bible verse is telling us is that there's going to be this divide in the generations between fathers and sons and sons and fathers. And what we're going to see in these last days before the coming of the Lord, which God wants to heal by sending a prophetic move of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, is to bring healing in the hearts, right? From what? From fatherlessness. Fatherlessness. While we were in college, we would go to concerts. I was in Delhi. Different colleges would have the concerts. 
One of the most popular songs by the bands of those days was this song. It's by the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. How many of you have heard that song? Remember the song? I can get no satisfaction. And I try, and I try, and I try. I've tried everything, drugs, sex, alcohol, and I can't get no satisfaction. How many of you have heard that song? My gosh. When were you all born? It's still a very, very famous song. Mick Jagger. How many of you heard his name? Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. So whenever this song would come up, the whole crowd, all the students would sing along. I can get no satisfaction. It was released in 1965. This song. But in the 1990s, we were singing it. Not because the song was old, but because the song was reflecting what was in the heart. Even today, this song is very, very, very famous. In concerts and so on and so on. You too, how many of you heard of you too? Bono. Okay. All of you are so holy and sanctified. In the 1980s, they brought out another very popular song, which is very popular in colleges, young people today. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Have you heard that song? No, you haven't. I feel like a sinner in front of you all. <laughs> Do you know the Rolling Stones are still there today? And if you look at them, they're still can't get any satisfaction from the way they're living their lives. And if you look at Bono today, it seems like he still hasn't found what he's looking for. Because they were echoing the heart of the generation. Even today, young people, they can't find satisfaction. Right? Social media. Hundreds of followers, thousands of likes, still no satisfaction. Social media... Fills your mind but empties your heart. Do you know that with more likes, it's proven that you feel more lonely? But it deceives you into thinking that you are liked and appreciated and affirmed. So you keep on chasing the likes. And your heart is more and more empty. What am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say this, that there is a void and emptiness in the heart of men. In the heart of children. In the heart of all people today. Where they can't find satisfaction from the things of the world. Whether it's money. Whether it is pleasure. Whether it is things. Whether it's holidays. Clothes. Fashion. You can't find satisfaction. Where does this come from? Okay, The Bible is saying that there will be a curse in the last days on the earth. And that curse is fatherlessness. That curse is the lack of knowing the love of a father. And that really defines so many things. Identity, purpose, strength, and so on and so on. So very important to the heart of God is the restoration 
of the heart of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Let's just look at the culture in the world since the 1960s. In the 1960s, the New Ages believe that there was an age that was launched. They say it's the age of Aquarius. And since the 1960s, we have seen a boom of New Age religions, which has led to the hippies movement, the drugs movement, the free sex movement, the feminist movement, the liberal movement, which has brought us to this post-church, post-truth era today. From the 1960s onwards, social scientists have discovered that divorces increased tremendously. From the 1960s onwards, they've discovered that teenage abortions increased tremendously. The rate of divorce. From the 1960s onwards, they found the pressure coming on the traditional concept of family. They found out that the movement of the homosexual gay agenda became stronger and stronger. So many things began to be affected. The traditional concept from the Bible about a father, about a family, a family is between a man and a woman, right? But now, many, many courts around the world are saying you can be man, man, and be a family. Woman, woman, and be a family. But biologically, and even according to the word of God, you cannot be a family unless you are a man and a woman. You cannot produce children, right? So the concept and the image of manhood, father, family began to be affected from the 1960s onwards, worldwide. The world entered into a social crisis. The rate of divorce increased. 50 to 60% of marriages end in divorce today, primarily in the West, but also now increasing in Japan, in Korea, in Asia, and now even in India. Okay, And interestingly, out of studying all of that, now there's been a trend in America and the West that they've discovered 70% of criminals, 70% of um, adolescent delinquents who are not adults, but then they cause problems as teenagers, whether it was vandalism, bullying, or um, you know, theft, drugs, and so on. 70% of criminals come from Homes which are broken, where there's no father, where there's no mother, where there's been divorce that has happened, and usually from fatherless homes. Fatherless homes. So this is what a social scientist says. The United States is rapidly becoming a fatherless society. Fatherlessness is the leading cause of declining child well-being. Now, this is not Christians who are saying this. These are people who have researched this from respectable universities. Okay, fatherlessness is a leading cause of declining child well-being. By child well-being, we're talking about physical health, mental health, emotional health. All right, providing the impetus behind social problems such as crime, domestic violence, sexual abuse, poor school performance. Scientists have discovered that when there is a loving atmosphere at home. Loving father, loving mother, the performance of the children in school go up better. 
especially related to maths and science. Some of you are bad in maths and science. Come on, let me see your hands. All right, that means your father must have beaten you a lot. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But the truth is this. When there is a stable home environment of love, it affects academic performance. Fatherlessness affects with poor school performance, mental health issues, substance abuse, and adolescent pregnancy. So a lot of the problems we're seeing in society is rooted in the home. The lack of a father or fatherlessness. That means the father is there, but there is no fathering. Okay? So fatherlessness, even according to the word, is without doubt the social curse of the last days. And is leaving an aching void in the hearts of men in a society. And that's why the need to preach the gospel, because the gospel reveals to us the picture of a loving God. Luke chapter 15. No, you don't have to turn there, I'm just saying this. You're already there, I'm sure. A picture of God as a father. God as a shepherd. God in the picture of a woman who sweeps the floor to find the lost coin. The Holy Spirit. Amen. So the picture of God that we have is absolutely important in the way that we explore our relationship with Him. I want us to look at Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13. And then we'll look at Lostness from the perspective of the elder son. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Are you there? Let's read it together. One, two, three. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A cistern is a container, in those days made of stone. Nowadays, a cistern would be a bucket. A bucket. Okay, so let's say you have a bucket. And your bucket has holes. On the sides and also at the bottom. Okay? So, this is what God is saying. My people, including us today, have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me. They've gone away from me. But not only have they gone away from me, they have hewn themselves. They have made for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is saying here, I am the fountain of living waters. If you think of the word living water, what comes to your mind? Think of Dimapur. Hot. Sunny. And then suddenly, in the middle of Dimapur, there's this cold, fresh, sparkling, blue pond of water. 
Suddenly you are there outside on the banks of this pond. And you're looking at this blue, shining, gleaming water. What does it make you feel? Fresh? Huh? Does it make you feel relaxed? Yes or no? So, God is saying, I am living water. So, living water, not just physically, but think of it in terms of your heart. It's about providing fulfillment to our heart. Quenching our thirst. Like I said, fatherlessness is a curse in the world. There's a thirst in the world for love. Do you agree? There's a thirst in the world for acceptance. There's a thirst in the world to be affirmed. There's a thirst in the world to have friends. How many of you, you prefer to be alone your whole life? How many of you, you believe to be married? Can I see your hands? Yes, you believe to be married. Why? Because God made us for a relationship. Yes or no? Yes. So there's this desire and this longing in the heart that God made us for. And this longing is there also for Him. But instead of coming to Him to satisfy our hearts, instead of coming to Him to satisfy our thirst, we have forsaken Him and we have gone to the world. And we have made buckets to satisfy our thirst. Buckets with holes. How many of you have heard this song? Very old, older than Rolling Stones. There's a hole in my bucket. Dear Eliza, dear Eliza. How many of you have heard the song? There's a hole in my bucket, dear Eliza. Then the reply comes, Then fix it, dear Henry. Dear Henry, then fix it. With what shall I fix it? Dear Eliza, dear Eliza. So Eliza says, You should fix it with this, this. And they keep on talking. And finally it comes to this point again. There's a hole in my bucket. Now, if you have this bucket in the rooms, do you think you'll be able to take a shower today? No matter how much water goes into this bucket, will it be full? Huh? No matter how many trips you take to the well, will it be full? No. It's not the water which is a problem. It's the bucket. When you try to fill your heart, that's what the Bible is saying, with the things of the world. When you try to fill your heart, even with your own works, with your own self-righteousness, with your performance, that's why that lady who went to prayer home told me, Pastor, I'm praying so much. I'm fasting. I'm confessing my sin. Still not satisfied. So I prayed the same prayer again. A lady came last year for counseling. She's filled with so much guilt and fear. She was saying this. I prayed the prayer, but I feel that the prayer was not done properly. So I prayed the same prayer again. But when I prayed the same prayer again, I don't feel satisfied. So I pray the same prayer again. And he was praying that same prayer, repeating the same words for hours. To the point where she could not even fulfill her responsibility as a mother. That the daughter had to bring her for counseling. Because her heart was full of guilt. And she was trying to get rid of the guilt by her perfect prayer. But it was like a bucket with holes. 
How many of you have confessed your sins? And then you confess the sin again. Come on. And confess again. And confess again. And at night you did it again. The next day you did it again. What is that? You are trying to fill your bucket that has holes in it. You are not satisfied with your own works. There's a hole in your heart. So that's also what we call lostness. Lostness. The young son was lost because of sin. He was trying to fill his bucket with sin. Whatever it is. The elder son was trying to fill his bucket with huh? self-righteousness, right? Good. He was trying to fill his bucket with self-righteousness or his own works. And the elder son was in as much misery as the younger son. But the thing about the younger son was that he realized. Realization came. The elder son, he did not realize. You know why? Because self-righteousness is deceiving. Sometimes, when you are in sin, you know you're doing wrong. Yes or no? But many times, when we are in self-righteousness, we don't know that we are lost. Let's look at Luke chapter 15. I may take a little bit more, longer time. Luke chapter 15. I want to redefine lostness. Because if you are here in Bible school, I know you are not the prodigal sons. The first one, the younger son. Maybe last week you were. But now you have come here. I know many of you are elder sons. And even when we have realized this truth and we come to God with grace and humility, if we are not constantly reminded of the grace of God, we can turn again to the elder son. So I want to deal with this attitude the elder son has. Luke chapter 15, verse 28. But he was angry and would not go him. He was angry. So, how can you know whether you are the eldest son? First attitude is this. You deal a lot with anger and resentment in your relationship with God. When the COVID pandemic came, and you were confused about whether this is from God or not from God, whatever, did you go through anger? Anger and resentment, when I'm talking about spirit, I'm not talking about angry because someone said something wrong about you, someone cheated, you know. In life, it's a very subtle thing deep in the heart. When life does not go as expected, when you're prayed, and what you're prayed for many, many months has not come to pass. When you have prayed for your uncle to be healed and he died, and your life did not go as expected. When you've done good, 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 good. And yet evil has happened. 
not only does it make you sorrowful, but many times it also makes you bitter. Yes or no? Bitter. I've met many Christians who are very bitter. Bitter. I pray, I fast, I go to church, I give my tithes, I do good works. But these people, they are caught up and they have bigger homes than me. And they are doing well, the children are doing well. That attitude. Have you seen it in you or in people? Yes or no? That is the attitude of the elder brother. It's there in all of us. Because we have this thought. If I live a good life, I should have a good life. If I live good, I don't do bad to anyone. I do good works. Then I deserve a good life. That's the underlying thought that comes from the law. Do you agree? So the thinking is this. If I live a good life, God owes me blessings. God owes me a good life. I deserve a good life because I have, by my own works, lived a good life. So usually when things go wrong, people who are very low-minded, self-righteous minded, religious, they get angry with God. They get angry with God. When I started out as a pastor, one of the first things I experienced was depression and fear. And when I was going through the depression fear, I was praying that God would just remove it supernaturally. But it did not go. And there were many times I was angry with God. Bitter with God. I was like, all right, I'm serving you. I gave away all my past desires and dreams to serve you. And now I'm going through this. Even though I didn't say it, this feeling this thought of bitterness was there. Like the elder brother. Because for the elder brother, his attitude was this. I am going to use my obedience as a tool to get blessings from my father. Do you understand that now? If you think like that, you are lost. If you think that in your relationship with God, you will use your obedience to get something from God, you are lost. Did you get it? Number two, attitude of the elder son. We are redefining lostness. Number two. Look at verse 30. As soon as this son, this son, can you see the contempt in his voice? Right? This son of yours, he can't even call him brother anymore. This son, looking down on him because he had wasted the father's possessions. So what is this attitude? Superiority. Superiority. There was a time when I got filled with the Holy Spirit. I was oh, I experienced anointing. I thought I was better than other Christians who do not speak in tongues. I never said it. But sometimes I felt it. 
And because I prayed for one hour, and other Christians prayed for five minutes, I'm better. Ah, these Christians, they don't even pray and fast. We talk about them like that. Have you ever done that? That's called a superior attitude. Superior. Superior over those that do not pray like you, fast like you, believe like you. Some denominations believe that God favors them more. Because of their doctrines, because of their practice and so on. And look down on other denominations because of their way of worship. Have you ever thought that? That's called a superior attitude. And that is being lost. So the superior attitude is this. Like the elder son. Because of my duty, because of my sacrifice, I should be rewarded more than others. So when other churches get blessed, they feel insecure. How come? When other believers are blessed more than them, they don't like it. Have you ever heard someone give a testimony of great financial blessing and then when you were listening to it, you did not feel very happy inside? Come on, come on, let's be honest. You thought, why isn't it me, Lord? Huh? And you know that one who's given the testimony. You know that person doesn't pray as much as you. And you wonder why God blessed them so much and you are believing and not happening. Have you ever gone through that? Exactly why? Because you expect to be rewarded for your good works rather than by the grace of God. See, a superior attitude is this. You always feel that you should be owed. God owes you. Right? I give tithes, God owes me now. So if you're giving to get, you are lost. It's okay, delay, it's okay, the Now, we know that there are Bible truths that say, as you sow, you will reap, right? But the motive of the heart is never supposed to be works, it's always supposed to be faith. Can you say amen? So when you see other people blessed, you think, why him and not me? Why the church and not my church? I pray in tongues so much, but this church, they don't pray in tongues and they are able to build big building. I believe in revival, Lord. So that's called a superior attitude. Superior attitude. When you have this attitude, you are lost. There's a story written by this author called Elizabeth Elliot. It's a fictionary story, but it's truth. And it's from the disciples of Jesus, okay? So one day Jesus comes to his disciples and says, Can you, each and every one of you, 12 disciples, carry a stone for me? Okay, listen. It's good that you're taking notes, alright? Carry a stone for me. No explanation. How big? How small? For what purpose? Jesus did not say. He simply said, can you carry a stone for me? So all the disciples are looking for a stone. Peter was very smart. He looked for the smallest stone. So he went and found a small stone. 
He put it in his pocket. And then Jesus says, now follow me. So everyone walked. John was a little stupid. He was carrying a huge stone. Uh-uh. Peter was uh, smiling. Small stone. So they walked the whole day till noontime. Time for lunch. So they sat down in the wilderness. They were thinking, where will lunch come from? Jesus says, take your stone in your hand. So everyone took the stone in their hand. And Jesus waved his hand and all the stone became bread. And Jesus said, that's your lunch. So Peter was feeling so sad now. His lunch finished in one bite. After lunch, they had rested. Jesus said to his disciples again, will you please carry a stone for me? Now Peter, his mind was functioning. He was like, now I know the trick. Peter looked for the heaviest stone. So Peter looked for the heaviest stone and he was carrying it. And then they walked for another three hours till evening came. They came to a river. And then Jesus told all his disciples, now throw the stone into the river. Peter was so disappointed. Because he was expecting a big meal that night. So Peter was so disappointed. Because he could not wait for dinner, right? And they were all perplexed, looking at one another, surprised. Peter was so sad. And then Jesus turned around and told his disciples, Don't you remember? I asked you to pick the stone for me. But many of you picked the stone for yourself. See? That's the elder son. He was not obeying his father because he loved his father. He was not in the father's house because he loved his father. He was not out there sinning like the younger son because he loved his father. He was selfish. He was obeying for himself. He was doing righteous works for himself. And that's why you will find elder brothers in the church, not in the world. We serve for ourselves. We obey for ourselves. We sing for ourselves. We do ministry for us. What is it called? It's called self-worship. It's called idolatry. What is it called? It's called this. There's a hole in my bucket. And you're never satisfied. No matter how much you do for God, you're never satisfied as long as you are doing it for yourself. There was a gardener who was a very, very, very gifted gardener. And he was able to farm the biggest carrot ever. So he said, this carrot is too big and too great for me to enjoy myself. I'm going to give it to the king. So he put it on a cart, took it to the palace, and he told the king, I'm a farmer. I planted this carrot. This carrot is huge. It is great. I don't want to eat it for myself. I want to bless it to you. I want to give it to you because you are the king. So the king was so touched by his gesture that when the, when the gardener was leaving, the king said, wait a minute. I also have land near your house. Can you also use my land and farm it? 
And whatever you grow from it, you keep from for yourself and you also bring to me. So the king, in a sense, gave his land to the gardener. There was a general there in the court and he was thinking, my gosh, if you could get land for a carrot, what could you get if you give something else? So he went to his house and he looked for something that he could give to the king. So the next day he brought a really, really good horse to the king. And he told the king, Lord, I have many horses. And this is a great horse. This is a wonderful horse. It's too great for me to be enjoying for myself. So I want to give it to you. So the king said, thank you. And he received it. And the king just walked away. So the general was shocked. And the general asked, yesterday you gave the gardener such a huge plot of land for a carrot. Today I'm giving you this horse. So the king turned around and said, you, the gardener gave the carrot to me. You gave the horse to yourself. Many of us obey God for ourselves. Not because we truly love Him. You know what it's called? It's called joyless obedience. Joyless obedience. Look at this. Verse 29. Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandments at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat. The elder son was obeying not for the father's sake, but for his own sake. He was obeying as a slave, not as a son. It was out of a selfish motive. Not out of love for the father. So that's the third point. Joyless obedience. When your relationship with God is characterized by joyless obedience, we're actually lost. The third is this. Un, a fourth, I'm sorry, fourth. Unforgiving and judgmental. Unforgiving and judgment. Look at verse 30. This son of yours who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. So that's an unforgiving spirit. He could not forgive his younger son, even though the father already forgave. When you cannot forgive a fellow Christian, even though God has forgiven him already, Christ has already forgiven him by the shedding of his blood, we are the elder son. So if our relationship with other Christians is characterized by unforgiveness, a judgmental attitude, we are lost, even though we are in the Father's house. Okay? Alright. The fifth point is this. <clears throat> Self-centered. Self-centered service. Self-centered. You never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. It's all about him. 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 His service towards God was self-centered. He was doing good for himself. Now there's many songs are all about 
self, what I can get from God, what God can do for me. So we have to be careful the kind of songs we choose for worship. Songs of worship are giving to God. But many songs nowadays are about God giving to me, receiving from God. Self-centered. Self-centeredness is idolatry. Point number six. Insecurity. Elder son had lack of assurance of the father's love. Many Christians have lack of assurance of God's love. Since he did not know that his father loved him, he thought he could earn the father's love by his good works. And he said this, You never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. You never threw a party for me. He could have asked. The father said, right? You could have taken it anytime. All that I have is yours. The father said that. But he could not receive what the father had for him. Because he could not ask in faith. He could not ask with boldness. He could not come to the throne of God with freedom. He thought, if I just do good works, God will give. He was trying to go and come to God through his works. There was no assurance. And that's why, see. People pray and they fast, but they still feel far from God. They still feel no intimacy from God. They still feel God doesn't love them. Anyone felt like that? You are trying to find your security in your prayers. So if you pray one hour, you feel good. You pray 10 minutes, you don't feel good. So you find your security in your works. The problem with that is your works are never enough. Your works are never perfect. When I was a young pastor, I would just do my work, house visits, pray for people, go back home, and as I'm praying, I would evaluate myself. Is there something I have not yet done? Is there something I have done wrong? I would always evaluate myself, and I would feel so unsatisfied. I would feel like, there must be something I haven't done yet. Anxiety would come. And I could not sleep. Because I never found the assurance... In my father's love for me. He sends the spirit of his son into your heart. So that you may call. Abba father. I was working as a slave. If you don't have this assurance. Let me tell you this. If something goes wrong in your life. If your prayer is unanswered. And your immediate thought is. Did I do something wrong? Have you ever thought that? If you get the bad news. Father got sick, mother got sick, accident, some bad news. And if the first thought comes to your mind is, did I do some sin? Anyone experience that? You are lost. Is it because I did something wrong? Or if you feel guilty, you feel condemned. Maybe because I'm not living right. Because I've done some sin. If something goes wrong and your first thought is to judge yourself, you are lost. And the church, I tell you, is lost a lot. Because when the COVID came, how many prophets began to prophesy judgment? When someone comes and criticizes you, and you got so discouraged, it devastates you. You know what it means? It means you are lost. 
Because you live for the approval of men. When someone says, Oh brother, you are so good, you pray so much, ah, you feel so good. But when someone comes and criticizes you a little bit, you feel so discouraged, so deflated, you are not secure in who God says you are. That's also a sign of being lostness. Oh, if you have indescribable guilt, how many of you deal with guilt many times? You don't know why you're guilty, but you're just feeling guilty. Indescribable guilt. Your conscience is always tormenting you of something you did last week. I tell you, that's a prison. You know what that is called? That's called being lost. And the seventh point is this, quickly. You have a dry prayer life like this elder brother. His relationship with his father, there was no intimacy. It was like a master and slave relationship. Alright? So if your prayer life is dry, it's only asking, 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 confessing sins, confessing sins, confessing sins. But there's no adoration. There's no love. There's no spending time to listen to Him and join the presence of God. It's only prayer, 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 prayer. This point, this point, this point. Confess this sin, this confess this sin, confess this sin. And that's it. And cast out demon, cast out demon, cast out demon. Without intimacy with the Father. Then it is also a sign that you could be an elder brother. Prayer is not supposed to be only like business. Going to the shop, giving 20 rupees, taking, that's it. Prayer is not supposed to be, Lord, I need these, these things. Thank you in Jesus' name. Prayer is communion. Prayer is meant to be intimacy. Prayer is supposed to be relationship. Amen. So understand this truth. There's a difference between religion and relationship. There's a difference between religion and the true knowledge of God. And our faith must come from the true knowledge of God. Amen. If you have been blessed through this podcast, we invite you to partner with us in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ from Nagaland to the nations. We make all our series available for free, but it does cost us time, effort, and money to do. So the support of people such as you will enable us to reach more people in more regions. Remember, when you give, the Word of God says in 2 Corinthians 9.8 that God is able to make all grace abound towards you. That you, always having all sufficiency, all things, may have an abundance of every good work. If you would like to support our media ministry on a monthly basis or through a one-time gift, kindly write to us at faithharvestnagaland at gmail.com and visit our website www.faithharvest.in and you can go to the giving section. You can also give through this UPI ID 700-568-4533 at Paytm. God bless you and thank you so much for your generosity.